Good morning, everybody. So I want to fill you guys in on where we're at with the building. Do you guys want bad news first or good news first? <laughs> yes. Uh, we, we, have found, we, we have found a building that we've been praying about. I'd like all of you guys to, to start driving past it and praying over it. Uh, it's an interesting scenario that we're looking at here. So the, the building is over on 146th and Ambom. It's the old Sound Ford auto body shop. And there's some really cool things that are happening here with this building. There's a paved parking lot that would already give us plenty of parking. There's plenty of space. There's much to be renovated. There's plenty of square space. And something that is really unique about this building is we may partner with a business to actually get into it. It's too big for us. It's 22,000 square feet. But over this past year, I have become just very fast friends with a local gym owner, the local CrossFit owner. And Andrew and I have been working together, and I've been working out at his gym, and we've just really developed a great friendship. And essentially, this building is divided into two plots. And so the back half of the building would be a 10,000-square-foot premier Northwest CrossFit gym. And Andrew and his gym would take that part of it. We'd put a big partition wall up. So you'd have the CrossFit gym in the back of the building. And then we would take the front 12,000 square feet. And we would renovate it. And we would turn it into the coolest church in the South End, obviously. Um, So that's the... uh, No. 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 You got to pay for your membership still. And, and, but this would be like the ultimate in, in health lifestyle building. You come, you, you, get your, you get your physical fitness on, then you get your spiritual fitness on. And I mean, you're in good shape and you're going to heaven. How much better does it get than that? You do. You actually have to join the gym. I'm going to tell Andrew that. And I'm also going to tell him that anybody that's part of his gym has to be a member of Taproot Church too. So... As business partners, we'll just make sure that we get the contract signed and you guys sign your covenants. It'll all work out. So, yeah, that's the bad news. Now, the bad news is uh, we, we certainly cannot afford it. And so we are praying. I wanted to just give you guys an update of where we're at. Over the last three, four months, maybe five months, uh, since I returned from sabbatical, we, we have kind of seen a steadying off in our budget and a steadying off in our numeric growth. And so I don't believe that that's going to be a constant. I think that God has pruned us over these last months and years. And now we're at a new stage with new leaders, Darren and Brittany and Will and new missional community leaders, new training coming into place. This membership series is a big part of this kind of relaunching of our church again. And so I believe that what we're going to see is a major uptick. One of the things that is really going to stop us is this, this space right here. So at Easter, if you include the kids, we were just under 200 people. And it was packed. It was fun. It was great. But we certainly physically, like any family, cannot grow any further than that. We're really about there in this situation that we're in right here. With this 12,000 square feet, depending on how we worked it out, we would be able to grow through that. Now, the issue is we're at that rock in a hard place point where a church is trying to break through a numeric barrier so that the budget barrier can go up, so that the budget barrier can pay for the numeric barrier. And it's really, it's really a, a tension. And so 
couple things on that. When we get to the disciples' disciplines, which will be the last session in this seven-part series on membership, I'm going to be emphasizing a lot that our members are giving. And there's no New Testament law. There's no scripture that says thou shalt give 10%. But we philosophically and methodologically, we hold that as a value, as, as part of who we are as a people, that's a good standard of giving in our budgets. And so I would like all of us to be praying about how much we're giving. We do have a goal and pastor Jim and I would love to be able to sit down with Andrew and Mick and all the guys that we've been working with and say, we're ready to make an offer on this. But uh, for all of my great risk taking, I'm also a realist and we're not willing to put any sort of offer on this building until we're seeing an uptick in our giving and seeing an uptick in the things that we need to see an uptick in. We'll move by faith and we'll make and take big risks that are calculated and that there's safety harnesses in place, the primary safety harness being Jesus. So please be praying about giving. Uh, essentially for us to get into this building with the offer that Mick thinks that we would need to make on it, plus the parking lot, plus the parking lot, we would need to essentially double what we're paying here. God can do that if that's what God wants. And so we're going to wait on God. We're going to see what he does. We've been working with the city already on this. They've given us permission to get in there. We don't have to change use permits, all sorts of stuff. The doors are open, but it is going to come back down to we as a community of people praying. Now, the final thing I want to say about this before we get into our session this morning is the mission of the church of Jesus is to make disciples. It's not to build buildings and have brighter lights. And in the Western church, we've talked about this. There's a tendency for us to make the mission, the building, and get bigger and bigger. We want to be bigger and bigger if God wants us to be bigger and bigger, because bigger and bigger means more people are being discipled. Okay? But we can never lose the emphasis on the reason we want a new building is one, for those of you that don't serve on the mobile teams, this is like living out of a suitcase every week. Our teams here are amazing. They serve you so well, but they're wearing thin. It's, it's time to get out of a tent into a little more stable home for us as a church. Uh, and the second thing is we need a bigger building to stabilize. We could start doing classes. We could start having worship practices, multiplying our bands. We could multiply membership classes, missional community classes. We, I mean, we could just get more stable, more space to do more ministry, more discipleship in. Not to bring people necessarily into the building as our end, but to train people to go out into the city, to go out into their neighborhoods as disciple makers. Okay? So that's the last thing I want to say. All of you start praying. If we start seeing a, a substantial uptick in our income, uh, we will keep you fu fully informed on where we're at, the decisions that Pastor Jim and I are making. And by the way, we're also receiving counsel from experts in this area. So we are in the safe zone. With that said, that brings us to today, the fourth session. For those of you who are visiting here this morning, we are in a seven-part series entitled Take Up Your Cross, Taproot Church's Membership philosophy. These seven sessions are not sermons per se. Normally at this church, we travel through books verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We believe that God's word is God's word. And so we pick up every jot and tittle. We preach it and we pray over it and we receive it as God's guidance to us. In these sessions though, 
we are not traveling verse by verse. Instead, we're outlining the overarching standards of what a member of this church looks like. At this point, we've talked about membership as discipleship, that first session, where we talked about the paradigmatic renovation or shift that's happening within the church from the baby boomers to the millennial and generation X church. No longer is it a consumer-based Christianity in the United States and the West. The church of the next generation will look a lot more like the church in history. Marginalized, opposed, oppressed. And what I believe we're going to see is a purification of the church. Where consumer Christians are faced with a decision. Am I a disciple of Jesus called to suffer and serve and lay down my life as a living sacrifice? Or am I just part of the crowd? And we've talked about that. You guys can go back and listen to those sessions if you missed those sessions. Session number two was the disciples' Bible. The final authority and standard of truth for a disciple of Jesus Christ is the Bible. And so we spent over an hour talking about how we got our Bible. What does it mean that the Bible is inspired? How do we know we have the right books in the Bible? Things of that nature. The third session, last week, we talked about the disciples' God. We talked about how God is wholly other than. His incommunicable and his communicable attributes. We talked about the Trinity and the nature of the Trinity and the defining marks of Christian orthodoxy. And so that brings us to today, the disciples' gospel. Another, I suppose, difference here for those of you that are visiting between our regular Sunday mornings is normally we do communion every Sunday after preaching the gospel. We'll repent together. We'll pray together. We'll partake of communion together. On these Sunday mornings, we're not partaking of communion together. We're actually doing Q&A. And so as we have done these past few Sundays, I'd like you to be writing down questions that you want to ask afterwards in the Q&A time. And we'll try to answer your questions as it pertains to this session, previous sessions, or questions that you may have as they relate to membership coming up here in the next three sessions as we wrap this up. The disciples gospel this morning. Let me pray for us. We're going to jump right in. Father. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus, the good news, the good news that salvation, salvation from death, salvation from meaninglessness, salvation from lostness has been accomplished for us apart from our works, the gift of grace in the sending of your son to live as a substitute, to die our death and to raise victorious on our behalf. Father, you're a good dad. You love this city. I believe that there are countless hundreds and thousands of people in the south end of Seattle that you want to use us to reach with the good news to bring into the kingdom of God. Lord, a building, whether it be millions and millions of dollars or billions of dollars is nothing to you. It's nothing. We're asking you to give us a new home to follow you and to worship you, to teach people about you, to train the missionary church, to go out into this culture and make new culture 
renew this culture. We're praying for revival in the South End. Multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-economic status revival. That the poor would be sitting next to the penthouse dwellers. Lord, that black and white, Hispanic and Asian all tribes and tongues, all cultures and subcultures within those cultures would be unified and centered around Jesus. We don't know how you're going to do that. We know that when revival breaks out in a city and in a church, it looks totally different than what it's looked like in history. But we are open and available, and we're asking you to move by your Holy Spirit. Today, as we look into the foundation, the beginning and the end, the A to the Z of our lives, the gospel, Let it drop deep into our hearts and transform us and motivate us and be the sole center of our lives. We exalt you now. May this be an act of worship in Jesus' name. Amen. At the epicenter of history is the man Jesus. Born of a virgin, lived approximately 33 years on this planet. Luke tells us that he lived as a man. He grew in wisdom and stature. So he was like you. He was like me. But he wasn't like you and he wasn't like me. He was without sin. He was perfect in every way as a human being. And he was perfect in every way as God incarnate. The son of God. In his 33 years, Jesus preached and taught Provided for, healed, and helped countless thousands, countless millions. We actually define the calendar that we live by, by his life. Prior to the birth of Jesus Christ, our calendars are termed BC, before Christ. After the birth and the life and the death and the ascension of Jesus, our calendars are termed A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Regardless of your belief or your stance or your opinion on the life of Jesus and the gospel, the good news of Jesus, he is at the epicenter of history. He is the epicenter of humanity. The ancient Jews and their prophets proclaimed that a Messiah was coming. For millennia, they looked forward to the coming of this Savior who would deliver them from their plight. And when he came, not only did they miss him, they rejected him and they crucified him. And now for thousands of years, humanity on a whole, not just a particular people group, has longed for and looked for and labored for some sort of salvation from their plight. Looking back on the cross, and like the ancient Jews, only a select few see Jesus as that sole Savior. There is no greater story in all of humanity than the story of the gospel. And if you listen carefully to the cultural stories, they all have echoes of the gospel. Our songs, our poems, our movies... All reflect the gospel. Stories of estranged lovers separated. Saved by their reconciliation coming together in the end. Romantic comedies. Ridiculous, but echoes of the gospel. 
are superheroes who are miraculous in power and strength. And they come in and they save the people who are oppressed by the enemy with their great might. The damsel in distress, the knight in shining armor. Our stories and our songs are replete with the echoes of the gospel because it is the yearning of the human heart. We as a people, we as God's creation, we know that there's something wrong. And there is not a single person on this planet who can say unequivocally without any other statement that they don't long for a better place. Because we long for perfection. We long for redemption. We long for reconciliation. We long for salvation. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer. At Taproot Church, we teach that Jesus is the answer for every person in every place, in every point of time. Jesus is the answer for you wherever you are at any point in time in your life. And we believe that the gospel is the summation of the story of Jesus. Let's talk this morning about what the gospel actually is. And we'll start here. The gospel is just that. It is good news. Gospel is a translation of the Greek word evangelion which carries the intonations of heralding and declaring. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is not a list of rules. The gospel is not an ordering of our conduct. The gospel is not a contract between man saying to God, this is what I will do for you. The gospel is actually a message that is declared. It is good news. And because it is news, because it is a declaration, the gospel is a set of words. If you've been a Christian for very long, you may have heard it attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. St. Francis of Assisi would say, I didn't say that. That's dumb. (laughs) In fact, St. Francis of Assisi was a mighty preacher. We have records of Francis actually preaching on Saturday nights in like six services on Sunday mornings. Francis would be the last person to say preach the gospel and when necessary use words because the gospel itself is a declaration of words. To not have words within the gospel is no gospel at all, as we say here at Taproot. A wordless gospel is not the gospel. And to say that you're preaching the gospel without words using relational evangelism or incarnational ministry is a misnomer. Now, I am not negating the fact that we should be a people who are in relationship with our community, loving our friends and family members and neighbors and foes. I am not saying that we shouldn't be the hands and feet of Jesus, providing for the poor, delivering the oppressed. But the gospel itself is actually a declaration, and a wordless gospel is not the gospel. So this good news, this declaration, is actually the good news of a historical event. As a member of Taproot Church, should you so sign that covenant in the coming days and months 
You'll sign a covenant that says, I believe in the historical validity, the literal living, breathing Jesus, the man who was on planet earth, lived, died, and rose again. None of the New Testament writers tell the story of Jesus as if it was some sort of allegorical, spiritualized, fluff your ethereal feathers myth. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them, wrote not their own gospels, but wrote their perspectives on this good news of the historical events of Jesus' life. So persuaded were they of what they had seen and what they had heard, that the men who wrote of him all died because of him. Unwilling to say that what they had saw didn't happen. Unwilling to recant their belief in the resurrection of Jesus, the oppressive culture around them strung them up, tied them up, staked them, impaled them, burned them, murdered them, martyred them, because what they saw in history literally happened and they could not deny what had happened. Peter, in 2 Peter 1.16 says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The Apostle Paul, the premier church planter in Asia Minor in the first century, speaking towards the validity and the history of these events that make up the gospel, said this, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at a wrong time, I also saw him. The gospel is the good news of historical events that took place literally in history. We must understand that if the gospel is not a set of historical events, then we are the most pitiful people on the planet. There's no reason for us to be gathered here this morning, worshiping, singing songs, opening up a book, worshiping a God, unless Jesus literally lived, literally died, and literally raised from the grave. Paul would agree with me in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. He said, if in Christ, in this life we have hope only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christianity is powerless, pointless, meaningless, if we are not serving a God who literally sent his son into history. Literally lived, literally died. Christianity rises and falls on the historical validity of this good news of these events. Now, this is important because it gives to us and it gives the gospel historical objectivity and immutability. Track with me on this, please. This is why this first point is important. The gospel does not change based on one's beliefs. We live in a culture where our culture, and maybe you there in your seat, you define God by your feelings. I feel that God is this way. 
And I feel that God does this. And I feel that God wants that. And my experience inwardly of God is this. It's all subjective. It's all contingent upon the subjective senses of our minds and our hearts. But the gospel, because it is the good news of a historical event, is objective and unchanging. Regardless of one's beliefs, perceptions, oppositions to, feelings on the gospel, it is still a record of historical events that took place and it does not change. Let me illustrate this for you. Nothing's going to change what I'm about to herald to you. Here's some bad news for you. September 11th, 2001. Two planes flew into towers in Manhattan, killing thousands of people. Whether you believe what I just said or not, the objective, immutable, unchanging reality of what happened in 2001 at 9-11 has affected everything. I don't care what our beliefs are on it. It's an objective, immutable reality. Let me give to you good news just to drive this point home. May 2nd, 2011, a presidential address at about 11 o'clock Eastern time. President Obama stood and he said, good evening. Tonight I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. Nothing changes the fact that on May 2nd, 2011, Osama bin Laden was murdered, taken out by our military. And that historical event, unchanging, affects and changes the way that we make decisions. Nothing changes the fact that now we can stand and herald in history, a man named Jesus came. He said crazy things about himself. Twelve men followed him. One denied him and betrayed him. Hundreds of people watched him die. Hundreds of people three days later from a swath of different languages and cultures and gender said that they saw him, wrote that down and died for that historical, immutable, objective, unchanging reality. And as members of Taproot Church, we must missionary Be missionary in our way of presenting the gospel because we're presenting the gospel to a world that says Jesus was some sort of spiritual allegory. Jesus was some sort of good idea. No, this happened in history and it must be wrestled with and it must be reconciled. Now, the second aspect of the gospel is that it's good news, but it's also good news of effectual works. It's not only a declaration of events that happened in history, but it's also the good news of what those events in history accomplished for humanity. Namely, a pathway to being right with the God who is, finding forgiveness of sins, mercy and grace. And it is also the good news That because Jesus has resurrected from the dead, not only can you personally be forgiven and live eternally with God, but all of creation will be renewed. 
The gospel is good news that Jesus came and because he lived and died, he now is the first fruits of what will be an overhaul of all of creation ending in a new earth and new heavens and everything being made right again. Theologians wrestle with this, defining the scope of the gospel. When Paul and Peter, when we as the church are sharing the gospel, what is the scope of it? When we share the good news that Jesus came and died, is the extent of the gospel and you can be forgiven personally, or does it have this broad sweeping reality? And at Taproot, I'll just summarize by saying it's all of that and more. The gospel includes the good news of justification personally and sanctification personally and glorification personally. All these big I-O-N words. And the gospel also includes the promise of coming renewal for all of creation. Let's talk a little bit here about humanity's response. One other unique aspect of this good news. The news of Obama relaying to us that Osama bin Laden was dead did not require a response from us. But the gospel does. And the gospel requires a response from every person on this planet. And every person on this planet has responded, whether you believe that or not. Let me explain what I mean here. Jesus came to Nicodemus a religious elite of his day. And in sharing the gospel with him, he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now here's the response that the gospel requires. The declaration of this news, the historical events, the broad effectual works that were accomplished by the gospel all require a response. And Jesus told Nicodemus, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. The apostle Paul would pick up this same truth That the gospel requires a response of faith and repentance and obedience. The declaration, the news of the gospel requires a response. And he would say, the message in Romans 10, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If, if, if. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Understand that the historical events of the gospel require a response, and there are only two possible responses. The first is to say, this happened in history. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose from the grave. Included in that response is, and I receive those effectual works. 
I believe that Jesus lived for me, Jesus died for me, and Jesus raised on my behalf. That's response number one. And then there is only one other possible response to the gospel. And every person that has ever lived makes it. One or the other. The only other possible response to this historical reality is, I do not believe that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected Or, I do not believe that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected for me. Or, I do not believe that that historical story has any impact on my personal life. Again, our surrounding neighbors, friends, and family members want to take what they would consider neutral high ground as it pertains to Jesus. I don't know of anyone here in the South End co-workers, friends, family members, if you ask them tomorrow, what do you think about Jesus? I would wager to guess that most of them would say he was a great teacher. He was the most moral man that ever lived. He was a good example to follow. And in all of those things, the lie is that they have taken a neutral high ground. Like, I don't need to respond to Jesus. I don't need to respond to the historical events of Jesus's life. I don't need to respond to his teachings. I love Jesus, but he has real no, he has no real impact in my life, no authority over my life. And that in and of itself is a response of rejection. That is a response of rejection. In a rational culture like ours, a highly educated culture like ours, there's not too few, but oh so many men and women who in the name of rationality, empirically, scientifically, the story of Jesus as a historical event couldn't have taken place. That is a rejection. That is a rejection of the gospel. And so there are only two responses. Now let's talk this morning, moving on, about what the gospel actually saves us from. Because the gospel is the good news of salvation. Here's where it's going to get funky. Okay? If we do not understand what we are saved from, the gospel is not good news. In Christian culture, it has become popular to talk about our salvation in terms of temporally what we've been saved from personally. I became a Christian, some will say, and Jesus saved me from my depression. When I became a Christian, I was an addict, and Jesus saved me from my alcoholism. When my wife and I became Christians, our marriage was in a disaster, and Jesus saved us from a broken marriage. Now, let me address something. Those are all wonderful things. Those are all glorious things. But ultimately, those are not what Jesus came to save us from. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to save humanity from God's wrath. This is an intolerable word in our hearts and minds. For some of us, it's an irreconcilable word with love. How can God be love and wrath? How can those two words be used in the same sentence in addressing God? Now, we address that in part 
in our last session, the disciples God. God is holy other than. He is perfect. His attributes, communicable and incommunicable. The span of who he is, is the perfection of all things that we experience as his image bearers, including anger and justice and righteousness and compassion and mercy and love. God is all of those things in perfection. But what we tend to do is create a teddy bear God who poo-poos our sin, sweeps it under the carpet, and it, it, it robs the good news and the goodness of the gospel. It defeats and diminishes the goodness of the gospel when we don't understand and when we don't share what we have actually been saved from, namely God's wrath. God's wrath comes in two forms. And I'm going to talk about that here in just a moment. We need to understand first that separation from God is a form of his wrath. Separation from him, this this. The sense of lostness, the sense of longing, the sense of want, that is part of God's wrath. When Adam and Eve were in the garden living in perfection with God and they sinned against God, a separation occurred. And in that separation, Adam and Eve would then go out and they would try to satisfy their longings with created things. This was all part of God's wrath. And so in our separated state, what we see are the symptoms of separation, depression, drunkenness, addiction, broken marriages. Those are all symptoms of God's wrath, God's separation from us. Addiction is nothing more than trying to satisfy the longing for comfort and control. Broken marriages are nothing more than the process of two people turning each other into gods and then those gods fail each other and so they break apart. So separation is part of God's wrath, but we must also understand that God's wrath is anger. Our sin, rightly, and I want us all to understand this, our sin rightly invokes God's anger. The only way that we can understand this is by trying to put it into terms that we can relate to. Okay? So here's a a brief illustration. Imagine that you had made a sculpture and this sculpture was your prized possession. You had put into this sculpture all of your heart, all of your energy, all of your financial resources. You had made this sculpture the pinnacle representation of you. And now I want you to imagine that one evening burglars and vagabonds and evil people broke into your sculpture garage and they took black spray paint and they sprayed all over it. And then one of the evil people took, took a hammer and just started beating on the sculpture. This is the pinnacle of your, your creation. This is the pinnacle of your representation of yourself to humanity. And these people just came in and they crushed it and they broke it and they beat it down. What would that invoke in you? What would that rise up in you? That sense of anger, that sense of I want justice, that's wrong, is the same sense only in perfection and eternity that God experiences when we, his sculpture, and the unique thing about us is he gave us a will, take a hammer, that's called sin, and we destroy one another and we destroy ourselves. 
Our sin is like taking a hammer to the sculpture that God made, spraying black paint all over it, destroying the pinnacle of his creation. And God is rightly and justly angry about that. And the Bible describes that anger as God's wrath. Now, this wrath does take two forms, passive and active wrath. Romans chapter 1, for the sake of time this morning, I don't have time to read it all. But Romans chapter 1, three times uses the language of God turned them over. God turned them over. Passive wrath is where God says to the sculpture, take the hammer and beat yourself to death. Passive wrath is where God does not intervene and stop sinful humanity from destroying itself, separating itself. It would be as if my son who says, I want to play in the street today, dad. If I was wrathful towards him, I would say, go ahead. Go do what you're going to do. God's wrath takes this form. As a member of Taproot Church, I want you to hear this clearly. When you're reading HuffPost, and you're reading about the promotion of transgender issues, homosexual issues, um, the touting and the, 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 the promoting of a libertarian morality devoid of any sense of biblical morality, and the world is saying we're finally freeing ourselves from the moral restraints of religious oppression, when we hear language like that, we all as members, and this is going to sound cult-like to some of you, and that's okay. You need to understand how different we are than the world if you're a member of this church. That is actually God's wrath. People being turned over. Turned over. Take the hammer, God is saying. You've invoked my just wrath and beat yourself to death eternally. It's scary. Now this gets weightier. The silence that falls over a room full of souls when God's wrath is discussed and talked about is healthy. God's act of wrath comes in the form of death and hell. When Adam and Eve separated from God and invoked his just wrath, what ensued was their spiritual death. They were no longer in communion with him. And what followed their spiritual death was their physical death. It is no different for all of humanity. The primary argument that I have for the existence of sin in all human beings is death. God's act of wrath is present in the death of humanity. And beyond this, God's act of wrath, the invocation and the fulfillment of his anger and his punishment of sin against him is eternal hell. Without hell, without death, without passive wrath against sin, the gospel devolves into salvation personally from things that are only symptoms of this separation. When the gospel is the good news that God has saved us from his just and right punishing wrath. Now, some will say, I don't understand how this God who is good and loving could punish sin eternally in hell. My sins are small. I'm a good person. 
I've never murdered anybody. I'm not Hitler. And this is a direct misunderstanding, and this is what takes us back to the disciples' God, a misunderstanding. We want to create a God of our own image. But God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly wise. And so the smallest, most infinitesimal mental motivation that is wrongly focused that sense of anger that is sinful or selfish or controlling or manipulative, and you don't even carry it through, you don't even say a word, you just have that sense, in holy, perfect God's eyes, it is the same as if you murdered. Every tiny little infraction, both outward and inward, in action and in mind, in motivation and in imagination, invokes the just and right wrath of God because he is holy and he is perfectly just. But Dan, why would it be eternal? I've explained this before. And I'll use this illustration again. If I was to get in a fight with my brother and I punched my brother in the face and my brother took me to court and there I stand before the judge and Troy says, my brother punched me in the face. The judge would say, okay, here is the punishment for assault. Now, if a cop pulled me over, gave me a speeding ticket, I was having a bad day. I come out of the car. I don't want that speeding ticket, get in a fight with the cop. Boom. I punched the cop. What happens? There is a different punishment for assault on an officer than assault on a brother. The punishment is greater. What? Right? The punishment is greater based on the character of the one sinned against, the position and the character. If President Obama was to walk into the room, and I was having a really bad day, <laughs> I feel like being a ninja right now for some reason. I just throw a right hook right at Obama, take him out, drop him. <laughs> Secret Service grabs me. Now I'm standing before a court, assault on my brother. The punishment is less than assault on an officer because of the character and the position. Assault on the president of the United States of America? We're talking no small potatoes now. We're talking big, big trouble because of the character and the position. In the most infinitesimal motivations that are sinful, i.e. not for the glory of God, it is as if we punch God. He who is of highest authority perfect character and he is eternal christians understand this the smallest sin whether in mind or deed is against an eternal god and so the only right and just punishment of the smallest sin in perfection from a perfect and just holy god is eternal punishment so god's wrath let's wrap this up it is ever-present burning against all of humanity. It is restrained currently by his mercy and his kindness. If we all got what we deserve, the moment we were born, God would annihilate us like a gnat flying into the sun. That, that even falls short. His wrath is present against this world, against sin, against our sin, and we are all going to die under his act of wrath and Salvation, salvation ultimately is salvation from his wrath that is right and just being expounded or poured out eternally in hell. In hell. 
And the scope of this wrath and all of those who are under this wrath is the fullness of humanity. Paul would say, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. It is with the weight of God's wrath fresh in our minds that the good news of the gospel begins to come alive. Because now we can begin to put into a framework these events that happened in history and the effectual works that these events in history accomplished in Jesus Christ, saving us from this eternally wrathful God. Because this eternally wrathful God is also infinitely loving, infinitely perfect in his mercy, in his forgiveness, and in his grace. And so God had to satisfy his wrath, but he loved his creation, his sculptures. And so he became a sculpture himself. And he did not sin Jesus did not sin. Jesus lived perfectly. And then Jesus took upon himself as our substitute, God's wrath. I'm going to read the passage that summarizes that whole idea in Romans chapter 3. Let your hearts listen to the good news. Listen. If you feel the weight of God's wrath over your soul this morning, here is the good news. But now... God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin or the propitiation. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. That's good news. That though we are under wrath, God sent his son. And his son represented us and died as our substitute so that God's wrath now has been placed fully in Jesus. Let me move on to this last slide or these last two slides and we'll get ready to wrap this up. Let me just give you the details of how the gospel saves us. The first part of the good news after coming under the bad news of the wrath of God is the incarnation. The good news that in history... The second part of the Godhead, as we talked about last week in the Trinity, the second part of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Son, in submission to the Father, came to earth, born of a virgin. Some important theological notes on the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. 
Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD, is where this confession and this creed came into its most clear articulation. For the first four or five centuries of the church, there were raging debates that birthed many heresies about the nature of Jesus. And like the Trinity, the mystery of who Jesus is is hard for us to comprehend fully. Jesus is two natures, but one. The term that came to be used was the hypostatic union, for you nerds that like big words. The hypostatic union of Jesus' natures. He was both fully God and fully man. And understand that as a member of Taproot Church, cults deny the deity of Jesus. The Mormons deny the deity of Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses deny the deity of Jesus. We hold to the early confessions and creeds of our forefathers who developed these arguments based on what the Bible was saying and revealing about who Jesus was and what Jesus said about himself. And so Jesus, in the incarnation, in the good news, would be God saying, I'm going to go do for them what they can't do for themselves. I'm going to go and live for them and die for them, which brings us to the second aspect of the gospel, which is the atonement. The atonement includes two parts. The first was Jesus' active obedience, and the second was his passive obedience. His active obedience was where Jesus lived the life that you should have lived to please God. He lived it for you perfectly. And this runs the gamut of human experience in all action and mind and motivation. This means that not only did Jesus not lust, not covet, not be prideful, not only was he perfectly humble, perfectly content, perfectly pure, Jesus also, here, this is for the Christians in the room. If you feel guilty about not praying enough, Jesus prayed perfectly for you. If you don't read your Bible enough, Jesus read the word of God and lived the word of God perfectly for you. Jesus evangelized perfectly for you. This is for the pagans in the room. Jesus made wine and partied perfectly for you. What Jesus did as a man, he did perfectly as your representative. Helpful illustration in the act of obedience of Jesus. The Olympics, Sochi, this last winter, when the United States would win a medal, the conversation the following day around the water jug would be, we won last night. The downhill. We won the downhill. The gold medal in the downhill. But you didn't win anything. You sat on your couch and you watched the gold medal being won by a representative who is faster, better, stronger, able to do what you can't do. But you still won. The federal headship or the representation of Jesus teaches us the good news is that now we who can't live rightly, we who By the very air we breathe, by our motivations are invoking the wrath of God. Jesus, as our representative, does not invoke the wrath of God, but rather his act of obedience merits God's love, merits God's favor, merits God's blessing. And so now, as our representative in active obedience, we no longer need to work and strive and labor. Next week, when we get into the disciples' identity and the following week, the disciples' community, we will talk about how this transforms everything. We'll talk about how this motivates us, how this drives us, how this guides us, how this satisfies us. But 
for today, Jesus represented us and he did perfectly for us what we could not do ourselves. The passive obedience of Jesus was where he went to the cross and took our death. That right wrath of God against our sin had to be poured out. There had to be punishment for our sin. Danny, why couldn't God just sweep the sin under the carpet? Why did there have to be punishment? I'll put it this way. Going back to our sculpture. You're now standing in a courtroom. You have the people that destroyed your, cult, destroyed your sculpture. And they're in the courtroom with the judge. Your sculpture is beaten and broken down. And you've just got it in a bucket there. And you're weeping over it. And you're angry about it. And you want what? You want justice. There needs to be punishment for that wrongdoing. And the judge looks at the wrongdoers and he says, not a big deal. You're forgiven. You can go. We would say about that judge, he is an imperfect judge. He is not a good judge. And so when we think about God's necessity of punishing Jesus, we must see that it came out of his justice. For God to be a perfectly just God, there had to be retribution for the sin of humanity. And what Jesus did is he took that retribution upon himself. Theologians use the word propitiation. The wrath of God, the punch of God, the anger of God was poured out completely on Jesus. Jesus then died on that cross, a death that you and I could never fathom. Not only was it physically horrific as the wrath of God was poured out upon him, death by crucifixion was one of the most gruesome torture devices that humanity has ever conceived. But the spiritual realities of what happened to the Son of of God on the cross are, they're incomprehensible. He who was perfect in eternity was separated from his Father. Jesus would cry out on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, Sabachthani, why, my God, have you forsaken me? And in that place, Jesus, who had lived perfectly for us, would then be forsaken for us, separated for us. The punishment that was to be ours, he would take it fully upon himself. I had a vision this morning about this. I was thinking about something that I was angry about. And in the vision, I'm just going to be very frank with you, I was mad and I had a baseball bat and I was wanting to hit something. And in the vision, I hit Jesus. I hit him over and over and over with a bat and he was tied up. And it's that imagery where we begin to understand the gravity of God's wrath and our sin against Jesus. And though he was fully God and could have called legions of angels On that cross, he stayed there, those beating him, the father pouring out his wrath upon him, all in love and mercy. The cross is the perfect display of holy justice and infinite mercy and love. God taking upon himself what we deserve. Death would come. We with our sin would beat Jesus to death. God, in our sin, through his wrath, would kill Jesus. Jesus would go into a grave and literally, 
in history, 2,000 years ago, the God-man Jesus Christ would rise from that grave. And in rising from that grave, God would herald him, proclaim him as the first fruits, the victor over death, the victor over sin, the victor over Satan. And God would promise that that same resurrection power would raise us from the grave and renew all of creation, Jesus being the first fruits of what is to come. We close with this. How do we receive this? It's not fair. I mean, if you've heard any snippet of this and really let it drop down deep, there's got to be almost like a revulsion to it. Like, what? That is not fair. Jesus was perfect. That is not, that is not. And the way that the Bible describes the unfairness of this to us is grace. What we don't deserve, the gospel is the good news of grace, unmerited favor. And the only response that saves is not, I see what Jesus has done. I will work really hard now to please him. I will do better. I will become a better Christian. I will be a better person. All of those things, all of those statements actually are prideful and invoke the wrath of God. Our very morality and attempts at perfecting ourselves are the hammer that beats ourselves to death. And God is rightly upset about that. Our only response that saves is to look at these historical events and these effectual works the incarnation, the living as our representative, the dying as our substitute, and say, I trust that as my source of salvation and as my source of meaning and as my source of joy and as my source of purpose. My whole life now is centered on, as Jesus is the epicenter of humanity and history, my personal life, I center on this gospel event and truth. I surrender to this truth. I submit to this truth. And by grace, the Bible teaches that God supernaturally, as we believe that Jesus did this for us, he places us in Jesus. In Jesus. So that what God sees when he looks at you is he sees the perfections of Jesus. When you pray in Jesus' name, it's as if Jesus is praying. When you evangelize, when you share, when you're looking at porn, when you're yelling at your wife, when you're coveting your neighbor's car, all God sees is Jesus's perfections. That's grace. That's good news. When you sin, when you fail, all God sees is the death of Jesus. It's as if you never did it. It's as if you never sinned in Christ. And the miracle of the gospel, the consummation of the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that though the effects of sin and the wrath of God will still have its way with us, we will still all die. Our victor, Christus victor, Jesus, the resurrected conquering king has made a way for us. And when we go through that river of God's wrath in death. The promise that we hold on to, the faith that we hold, the surrender that we have made to this king, the Bible tells us the good news is we will rise to eternal life. And it won't be eternal life in clouds and blue skies with white robes and harps. 
The consummation of the gospel has its closure in a new heaven and a new earth where we will live just in bodies like these. Resurrected, put back together forever. That's good news. I want to close with that. I want to exhort each of you this morning. The gospel is for you as a believer. I can guarantee you, if you look deeply enough at what's troubling you right now, the problems or the fears or the doubts or the worries that you have, it's because God is revealing to you a false God, an idol. We're going to talk at length about this next week. There's something that you're trusting in rather than just letting the truth that God loves you and accepts you. You're still trying to gain his favor. You're worried that you're being punished. You're not believing the gospel. Some of you in here may be religious and you've never actually come to believe and trust Jesus alone. You're in church because you've got to keep your boxes checked with God so that he blesses you. You're in church this morning because there's a lot of pain in your life and you're trying to get God to kind of, you know, put the brakes on the pain. So I'm going to be doing what's right. That's all religion. And God is saying, I'm calling you to be the most intimate with me. One with me. What you always were intended to be. The sculpture is my representative and one with the Father, Son, and Spirit. And one with this community. So much more that could be said. I exhort you this morning to believe. To repent and believe. To turn your hearts to this amazing God. And then this week, let this truth in every way filter the way that you look at the world. Filter the way that you look at your experiences. Filter the way that you look at people. I'm going to pray. We're going to do a little Q&A. And then we're going to close with questions this morning. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, I just praise you. Huge concepts in the gospel. Ideas that are hard for us to comprehend. Because we swim in an aquarium of subjectivism and pluralism the ideas of holiness and justice escape us because we are unholy and unjust but father by your holy spirit i trust you to to take these words the declaration the good news that you love us you sent your son to live for us and die for us we are safe and secure in you father i pray that by the holy spirit right now you would plant that in the hearts of the members of this church. I pray that the the current and prospective members of Taproot Church would be centered in the story of Jesus. That they would preach and herald the good news of Jesus. That we would live our lives in accord and in response to the good news of Jesus. Help us, Father, to spread this good news. Grant us favor. Lord, Your passive wrath is upon our city. Your passive wrath is upon our neighbors and our co-workers. What they perceive and think and believe to be the high neutral ground in relation to you is your passive wrath. And so we pray for mercy and we pray that you would impart to us boldness and wisdom and prudence. In both sharing our life with people and sharing the life and death, and eternal life of Jesus Christ. Lord, bless our church. We pray fervently. We pray repeatedly. We pray continually to be a missionary force in this city. We don't want our lives to be wasted, Lord God. We don't want our lives to be focused and centered in this world alone because we know that you've given us eternal life. 
Help us to live out of that truth and prioritize our calendars around that truth and prioritize our budgets around that truth and prioritize our goals around that truth. Lord, baptize every one of us in your power. Immerse us in your strength. And now, Father, I do humbly pray for wisdom and fielding questions that your answers would be given, that the Bible would be our source and our guide and that your spirit would be empowering us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I don't know what kind of questions may rise from an explanation of the gospel as such. Uh, I'd like to open up the floor for questions that you may have as it pertains to membership on any different level. And if we don't have questions this morning, that's great. We'll, we'll close up with some songs. Looks like the sun's coming out. So, yes, sun. Man, I don't think, son, you could have asked a better question. All the questions in this, in this house are going to be good, but that, that's going to rank it probably number one. Son asks the question, I talked about the necessity of a response to the gospel and how Paul in Romans chapter 10 talks about how if one believes with their heart and confesses with their mouth, and son is asking the question or asking for further elaboration on the nature of believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. Let me say in opening to answer this question. Let's get out our notepads because I'm about to give a lengthy answer, okay? First of all, from the heart, the mouth speaks, okay? So confession is not merely words that are spoken, but it's like confession is the end of a hose where water is coming out and the sourcing is where the faucet has been turned on. And so the heart must be transformed. So when Paul says, confess with your mouth, he's not giving to humanity some sort of work liturgy. If I tell Jesus, I confess you as Lord and Savior, but there's no heart transformation, it's a lie. Heart transformation is supernatural. We do not... No, we do. Today, we did not talk about the details of what we call in theology the order of salvation or order salutis. God is the one who saves and transforms the heart. So, the response to the gospel is both the responsibility of mankind, but it is God's merciful working that brings the change. I'm dealing with doctrines here that we call uh, election, predestination, God's sovereignty. Everything that we've talked about to this point is just as mysterious. Trinity, dual nature of the incarnation. Now we're into an area of man's responsibility to respond to the gospel and God's sovereignty in changing the heart. So the relationship 
Track with me. The relationship to a heart that responds and confesses Jesus as Lord that is truly saving works like this. The gospel is declared. The gospel is heralded. Good news of Jesus. And the Bible teaches us that God from before time predestined. Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 9. Chose men and women that he would pull out of his wrath. Based solely on grace. This is one of the most devastating doctrines. When you first begin to learn about it. It is also the most humbling and God glorifying and joy producing doctrines. When you begin to realize what God has done for us as believers. So God predestined and chose. He sent his son to die, to live and to die. And then God supernaturally transforms the heart. So the gospel is declared and it is heard. And in a moment, it is man's responsibility to say, I believe that. But from God's perspective, he chose that man and he wooed that man and he softened that man and he opened up that man's eyes supernaturally by the spirit to say, you know what? That did happen in history. You know what? He did die. You know what? The effectual work of Jesus's life in history has effect on me. I believe that in my heart. I believe that I am transformed. The Bible uses language like regenerated. I am born again. I am given the gift of faith by grace. All of these things happen. And what ensues from that supernatural transformation of the heart, the faucet gets turned on. And what flows out is confession. I would never dare to explain how that works in detail. What we have in the New Testament is the mandate to herald the gospel as historical and effectual. And God uses that gospel to save human beings. The mystery in all of this is that God holds responsible all humanity. And those who go to hell are in hell because they chose to deny the gift of the gospel. They chose it, and they will be rightly rejected for all of eternity. Son, we just opened up a huge can of worms here, so <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's see where this takes us. Any other, any other questions? And son, is that helpful? Okay. Maybe I could, maybe I could draw it in even a little bit more. Let me, let me do it this way. This morning... If when I was talking about wrath, you had any sense of, oh my goodness, he's talking about the wrath of God, this holy God against me. Can I just say that that's God working in your heart? That's God plucking you out of passive wrath. Every time you and I find ourselves saying, oh my gosh, I feel so guilty about what I just did. That's God's grace plucking you out of passive wrath. Every time you make a decision or a moment in your heart and mind where you catch yourself and you're like, oh boy, that's, that's God plucking you out. That's God mercifully working in your heart. And I would also add to that, that the primary reason we're so afraid to evangelize is because we don't believe in our hearts, the gospel, to the depth that we should, to the depth that we could. If we truly believe that hell is forever, that God is good, that all humanity needs to hear this good news, it's the pinnacle message to all of the world, then Jesus will be on our lips. And if Jesus has truly saved us, then that 
name will be constantly on our lips as a part of our natural confession. Okay. Other questions? Other questions? Anything that has to do with membership, the gospel, stuff we talked about last week? Yes. Yeah, another out-of-the-park question. So the question is, is framed in this way. Can I explain how we tend to always drift back to religion, checking the box, versus uh, living out and believing the gospel in our hearts continually? Next week, we're going to, the next two weeks actually are devoted to this. We're going to talk about how the gospel shapes our identity next week, and then the following week, we'll talk about how the gospel drives us into community with one another. So I'm going to try to think of a way to illustrate this well. Let's take the disciplines of Christianity. For many, you've been taught that the gospel is the beginning. It's, it's how you get saved. It's your get out of hell free card, right? But then after that, it's all about you doing the work to make sure that you're becoming holy, becoming more like Jesus. So it works like this in, in religious Christianity. Jesus died for your sins. Trust him, you'll be saved. And make sure that you read your Bible every day, have your quiet time, make sure you're going to church, make sure you're fasting, don't use certain words, don't go to certain movies, don't dance certain ways without a Bible width between you. I'm using ridiculous illustrations from past. In a church like ours, in a church like ours, here's, here's the reverse of how religion seeps into a church like ours. Oh, I see you're wearing a suit at church this morning. <laughs> you know, at Taproot, we don't wear suits. We wear shorts and Birkenstocks and put tattoos on us. And that's the way that real Christians live, right? Oh, I see that you're not having a beer with your lunch after church. You know, at Taproot. You can't really be a member unless you like IPA. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm trying to illustrate, let's stay serious. Let's get us back on track. What I'm trying to illustrate is that we drift towards our doing is our means of being right with God. So I'm in. I'm not going to hell because I trust Jesus, but I got to work hard and I got to make sure I do this. Let me prove to you that all of us suffer from religious guilt nonstop. How many of you read your Bibles every day last week and had 15 minutes of quiet time? You feel that right there? You feel that sense of... (sighs) That's because you are trusting in your work to be right with others and God. You are trusting in your work. That sense of guilt right there, that moment where I say, you didn't have 15 minutes of quiet time every day last week? There's two sources. One, you're saying, oh my gosh, I better have my 15 minutes of quiet time with the Lord every week next week so that when Pastor Danny says, did you have your 15 minutes? I'm going to stand up and go, yes, I did. (laughs) And then I'm going to say, you're a religious Pharisee. You crucified Jesus. Sit down. (laughs) Because when we're religious, if we think we're making it, I read my Bible 15 minutes a day. Oh, God, look at me. You're so blessed to have me. I'm a Bible-reading fool. Or... Or we're in despair. 
oh God, I don't even know what I'm going to do. How could you? You don't love me. I don't merit your love because I didn't read my Bible 15 minutes a day last. That's religion. Contrasted with this. Did you read your Bibles 15 minutes a day, every day, last week? No, but Jesus Christ lived perfectly for me, so I am accepted. I think I want to read about that. Are you in a missional community? No, but Jesus was in perfect community with the Trinity. And so I want to be for me, for me. Jesus was in perfect community with the Trinity for me. So I want to be in community with others so I can learn about that vibrancy of love and grace. Did you drink too much last Friday night? The religious Christian says, yes, I did. And I will never do that again. The gospel-driven Christian says, Jesus partied perfectly for me. I'm free. I'm satisfied. Now, the second way, I'm going to draw this out a little bit more. The second way that the gospel, and this is where we're going to go next week for about an hour or so each week. The second way that the gospel drives us is it drives us away from false gods. All of us need to understand that we are all pursuing salvation from some sort of false god, and the gospel draws us to the true and living God. So I'll give you my gods because they're easy to talk about and they're easy to explain. I have the God of success and I have the God of men's applause and I have the God of performance. This is why I am a competitor of competitors. It doesn't matter what it is. If I'm sitting in a group of people and there's any even hint of competition, it's going to be on and I'm going to win because that's my identity. That's my God. I find my satisfaction and my identity, who I am in being a winning, applauded performer, successful. That God crushes me or that God lies to me and makes me more than what I truly am. Okay. The gospel comes and says to Danny, the gospel sets me free. A gospel driven Christian says, you know what? In this competition, whether I make it or don't make it, whether I win or don't win, Jesus competed perfectly for me and already won everything that I could ever win. His love is enough. I don't need the applause of people. I have the applause of God the Father because of Jesus. You see, the gospel sets me free to where now I don't have to compete and I don't have to be liked. I don't have to be applauded. I don't have to win. And if I do win, there's no pride in it. If I do win and if I am applauded and, oh, wow, that was wonderful. It just changed my life. No, what you're hearing there is Jesus changing your life. He's the one that does all of these things. And this plays out, the gospel plays out in every single facet of our identities, our communities, and our lives. I guarantee the problems in our marriages, if we go deep enough and we articulate it clear enough in counseling or whatever, what you're going to find is the problem in our marriages is the two partners are not centered on the gospel and some false God is driving them. A false God of food, a false God of money, a false God of success. When two spouses make each other their gods, you're going to give to me love. You're going to give to me uh, affection and relationship. And then that spouse fails. It's because this spouse is asking that spouse to do what only the gospel can. I receive love from God, acceptance from God, affection from God, relationship from God. How do I know that? I know that because I see the bloody son of God dead for me. That's proof enough of love and resurrected, promising me life eternal with him. That's all satisfying. That becomes all consuming so that now I can go back to my spouse and repent 
repent and say, I've been treating you as God. I've been, you've been failing me as a relational God, as an applause God, as a success God, as a performance God. You haven't been applauding me. I'm sorry for that. Let me just love you. Let me serve you. Do you see? And this plays out in the workplace. This plays out with our finances. The reason that, the reason that we don't give is because we have a God of comfort and we have a God of control. And the gospel comes and the gospel says, the gospel heralds, that he who was infinitely rich beyond what you could ever imagine gave everything up for you so that you can now freely give. The reason that we don't prioritize our time around community is because we don't understand that Jesus left community in the Trinity to come after us and give us free community. And where this devolves to, where we all drift to in this conversation, as I start giving examples is, oh boy, I better get that right. I better get that right. You've already drifted to religion. A gospel-driven Christian says, it's already right. Now, how does that affect the way that I do things? It's already perfect. But Danny, that's scandalous. It's so much grace. I know. It's unbelievable good news. It's the gospel. It is good news. It is good news. Next week, we're going to spend a couple hours talking about that. Um, <laughs> just setting you up right now. I got you on the tee. Here we go. Bop. <clears throat> Anything else? We're going to wrap it up in prayer, sing songs to Jesus. As far as hell and Jesus going to hell? Okay, yeah. It's a good question. Um, So there is the the teaching that Jesus, after he died on the cross to fully absorb the wrath of God, went to hell for three days. Uh, This is based on a second century evolution of what came to be called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is one of the earliest confessed creeds that the church has. And it does indeed say that Jesus went to hell for three days on our behalf. That creed is established on two or three verses, one in Ephesians chapter 4, two other verses in the books of First and Second Peter, that intimate, if read in a certain way, that Jesus went into the under parts of the earth, that Jesus preached to the dead. And so this teaching that Jesus went to hell for us got stuck in the Apostles' Creed. And it's one of those things that has stuck with the church since the Apostles' Creed became part of our regular confession. And it is not in line with the New Testament. In fact, you can't really find too many New Testament scholars who would argue that those verses teach that Jesus went to hell. One of the primary refutations of the idea of, going, of Jesus going to hell for us was that, one, Devin brings it up. On the cross, when Jesus died, he, he uses a word, a Greek word that's an interesting word. It's the Greek word, tetelestai. And this word essentially means 
It is finished now in this moment. The moment Jesus died and he cried out, it is finished to Telestai. And Luke tells us he gave up his spirit. John 19 uses that word to Telestai. It is finished. That word in that way, used that way, Jesus was saying in this moment right now, atonement, salvation, the wrath of God, propitiation, justification of sinners, sanctification of human souls, the ultimate glorification of all creation at my death in this moment, as I say these words, it is done and it is done forever. It is done forever. The way that the syntax is laid out in the Greek of that word, it is done forever. Jesus was not saying, and I need to go pay your penalty in hell for three days. He's saying my death now, the hell that I've experienced on the cross, physical and spiritual Hell, the separation from my father and the spirit in this moment of death, it is finished. The second thing that we see on the cross, though, is that Jesus said to the thieves, today you will be with me in uh, paradise. You will be with me today. Jesus does not intimate in any way that he would be going to hell for three days. So there was some sort of intermediate state that Jesus entered into. During those three days, this is what the Bible calls. And this is what I'm guessing now I'm way out on a branch answering off the cuff here, but this is what the Bible describes as heaven. What Paul described in second Corinthians chapter five as that intermediate state where we leave the tent of our bodies and we're in the presence of the Lord. And one day there will be this resurrection. My assumption, my new Testament, fairly well-informed red assumption is that in those three days, Jesus was in paradise in this intermediate state with the thief, with Abraham, with all the believing Jews who had looked forward to the coming Messiah. He was in this intermediate state. And three days later, he rose into the first fruits of what we will all become. When you die, you will go into this intermediate state. This, the Bible just does not tell us a lot about it. Looney Tunes gives us tons of imagery with, you know, Wiley e. Coyote getting hit with the anvil and he goes up and floats up and the angel stuff, all that kind of stuff. We get all that from the book of Revelation, but Revelation is describing ultimately what has its consummation in a real heaven and a real earth and, and an eternal existence where the world is all made right. Where creation and weather and, and you know, Squirrels and cats and dogs and vipers and children and lions and lambs all lay together. That's the end of all things. So that's a, that's a long answer to try to refute the idea of, of, going to, of Jesus going to hell. The other thing that we need to be careful of is the idea of, of limbo, uh, which are some of our Catholic, I call them brothers and sisters in the sense that some Catholics do indeed trust in Jesus Christ alone as the mediator between God and man. But the Catholic dogma of limbo and purgatory are actually only taught in the apocryphal books, particularly in the books of Maccabees. And so the idea of some sort of intermediate state where your sins are prayed out or prayed through or somebody does the work for you, baptism of the dead and the Mormons stuff, which is based on a super ambiguous passage in 1 Corinthians 15, there's no case for that. Hebrews says it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. And so our response to the gospel in this life determines our eternal destiny. You're either in Christ today, trusting him and the wrath has passed over you onto Christ, 
or you are under wrath right now. And if you die today, you are separated forever from God, rightly and justly. And there's no praying you out of that. That's a chilling reality. That should birth gospel boldness in us, by the way. If you love people and you believe that, then you'll want to save people from that. And you'll preach with, with power. It's 12 o'clock. I think, we should, I think we should wrap it up. Great questions. Any, any other question before we pray? If you really have something burning right now? Okay. Here's where we're going over the next few weeks. Then um, next week, the gospel's, uh, excuse me, the disciples' identity. We'll talk about how the gospel motivates us and transforms us. Then we're going to talk about the disciples' community. That's where we're going to talk about the importance of missional community, Sunday gatherings, things like that. Then we'll talk about the disciples' disciplines. Um, you know, it might be fun if you guys would get on the city. I'm going to have two weeks before I go on vacation, and you guys give me topics to preach on before I go on vacation. Because we're going to have like two or three Sundays before I go. Just burning stuff that somebody would want, want teaching on. That might be something fun to do. If you guys don't post anything, then I'll pray and see where the Lord takes us. Then we're going to have summer, uh, summer vacation. Darren and Will are going to be teaching. We've got a guest preacher coming in from one of our uh, pastor training cohorts over on the plateau. Uh, then when we get back, we'll be going into uh, probably the Paul's, the prayers of Paul. Then we'll go back to the gospel of Mark. All that saying, Jesus doesn't return this afternoon, which he could. Let me pray for us and we're going to sing. Father, thank you um, for the gospel of Jesus. Thank you that you save us mercifully by grace. And um, I do pray that we would understand and let the gospel drive us that the scandalous nature of your grace is just so, it's so hard to grasp because we're so religious and it's just so good. It's so good and it's so overwhelming to believe today that we are right because of Jesus. It's not about our church attendance. It's not about our moral behavior modification. We are right because of Jesus. And we pray that that would be the epicenter of our existence. You're not mad at us. You're not angry at us. You're not wrathful against us. You're not punishing us because of Jesus. We merit the full favor of God just as Jesus earned it. We are loved, Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This triune God has brought us into oneness with him in the spirit. Lord, as we close this morning in worship, I do pray that that truth would drive us. And I pray that there'd be no heart and no mind not impacted in this room by the truth of the gospel and that you would set people free this morning to celebrate you and, and live their lives this week centered on the gospel without fear or shame. And that the gospel would motivate them to godly disciplines of reading their Bibles and being in community and giving and prioritizing calendars and working hard. All the things that the gospel sets us free to do with joy and without fear. Bless my brothers and my sisters. I thank you for my family here. And we pray that you would expand us. Expand us out to just saturate this city with the love of God and the kingdom of God in every way. Thank you so much in Jesus' name.